0: chapter three. Luke chapter three. Last year around Christmas time we did Luke 1 and two, except for the last uh, 20 verses or so. But I'd like to continue with Luke chapter 3. It's one of those passages that are um, by today's thinking it would be say, wow, this is pretty harsh, right? You can come across that way. But it's not, because it's the Lord coming and saying, I want life for you. And um, it's, it's John the Baptist in the wilderness. The wilderness kind of life that he's in, and he addresses the situation. But I'd like to read Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Utria and the region of Trachonitis and Lysias Tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of the God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness." And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abram as our father. I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abram from these stones, and even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, or two coats, let him give to him one who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, What shall we do? And so he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. Now, as the people were in expectation and all reason in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor, gather the wheat into the barn, his barn, and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations he preached to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this above all, that he shut John up in prison." So that's our uh, focus. Actually, our focus is really uh, verse four, the first part there, or the second part, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Okay, so a voice cries in the wilderness. And we're going to see how he prepares the way of the Lord. And then, second of all, with that comes a call to repentance. And third of all, he points us to the Messiah the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we find everything we need for this life and the next. So those three things we plan to focus on this morning. It's about relationships, isn't it? The Christian life, after all, relationships begin with whom? God initiating a relationship with us. That's life. To live apart from God is death. That's life. And outside of God, It's just a wilderness, dry, parched, right? Misery. Okay, what does sin do? Sin separates. It spoils everything. It spoils relationships, right? It keeps a husband away from his wife. It keeps a child away from his mom or dad, right? It keeps one member away from another member. That is not the life that God intended for us. It's not fruitful. It's, 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 it's misery. It's, it's a wilderness. It's a dry kind of life. In Isaiah 40, 3 through 5, by the way, that's what uh, John quotes here in, Mark, in Luke chapter 3. He quotes Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. And what was the sin of God's people? Well, it was idolatry. It was doing what they wanted to do. They had no, their hearts were not drawn to the Lord. And the sin of God's people kept God away from them, right? The sin kept away God from them. And as a result, God sent them. He says, you don't want me? You don't want my place? You don't want my house? You don't want to come to me in my way? Here, have what you want. Go into exile and they were sent to Babylon. They had all the gods there, and they had all the life of the the gods there. It was a hard and miserable life. But you know what? God never forgot his people. He takes the initiative, and he says, I'm going to come back to you. But when I come back to you, this is what I want from you. You must prepare. You must prepare the way for me to come back to you. The picture there is God coming to his people, but it's the people who must be prepared. Now, 700 years later, so this is 700 years later now, when John comes on the scene, and he brings out the meaning of the prophecy with the cry in the wilderness. He brings out the meaning of what does it mean to prepare the way of the Lord? Well, repentance. He brings that really clear, right? Right? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. That's what it means to prepare the way of the Lord. It's You see it fulfilled here in John. He was a herald. He was a way preparer for the coming king. And who was the one that was going to be coming on the scene very shortly? The Lord Jesus Christ, the one who brings salvation. He announces him. Very specific timing. In the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, an actual emperor... Right, real life emperor at the time, the emperor of Rome. Pilate was governor over Judea. Right, it's very historical. Uh, Herod was governor in Galilee. Annas and Caiaphas, right, they were the high priests at the time. It's just at that time, the Lord raises that voice. That voice with John the Baptist. Notice John the Baptist, he doesn't even want to be mentioned per se but he's the voice, the voice that God sends into the region in the wilderness around the Jordan River. The first place he goes is not to the world. Yeah, the world needs to repent, but the first place he goes is to the house of the Lord. He First of all, he goes to the covenant people of God. That's where repentance begins. That's where he begins. And three things here, prepare the way of the Lord, very, very strong command. He commands them, prepare the way of the Lord. Repent of sins, you see, second of all. And third of all, hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. John is that voice, first of all, in the wilderness that Isaiah spoke of before. The voice is what is important. John himself does not see himself as the important one here. He's simply the voice. By the way, that's how we should should see pastors, too. They're not the important ones. It's the voice. It's the message. Is it true to God's word? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, says verse 3, 4 and 5. Prepare the way of the Lord. It comes with a very strong command. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. You know, it was a custom of the day. I don't think you see that today, except maybe with the Pope or something. But when a king would come to visit the people, he would use or send one of his servants ahead to get all things ready And the servant would make sure that the city was clean, the area was clean, and that the people were all ready to receive in jubilation the king. Now Jesus, the king, is coming. Prepare the way. Make his path straight. Now, he's not talking about a physical, literal highway, you know, tar and pavement. He's not talking about that kind of highway you know, rolling out the red carpet on the road for the king to come and visit. No, he's addressing the heart. The heart. Prepare your hearts for his coming. Of course, then it was the first coming. Today we ought to do that for his second coming. Ah, John is saying to his hearers, there are so many obstacles that stand in the way of your coming. The sin, sorry, that sin in the way of Jesus coming. There's so much clutter. There's so much debris in your heart. The obstacles, the clutter, all that sin. The way was not straight for the Lord to come. Their way was not straight. John encourages them. You get right. Get into a right relationship with the Lord. You know, John himself... He lived his life. He grew up in the wilderness. His whole life, you could say, was a sermon, was a walking sermon of what it was to be in the wilderness, a spiritual wilderness. It's a dry place. The wilderness where Don was, it was just a very dry place, parched ground. There were little pebbles here and there, stones, broken rocks. Oh, and there were some brushes. You could say some bushes. And guess what were under those bushes, boys and girls? Snakes. Lots of snakes under those bushes. And you had to be careful of those snakes because they were vipers. Okay, that's where John lived. In another part of the gospel, another gospel says, what did he eat? He ate locusts, grasshoppers, you could say locusts, and honey, wild honey. And he wore really strange clothes. Really strange clothes. It was a place where there were hills. Valleys, but really no path, really no road at all. And now John is like a new Samuel preparing for a new David. The new David, of course, is Jesus, the King. In His grace, in Jesus' grace, and by His power, the coming King, He comes to meet our every need. By the way, the call is to repent, right? But repentance is also a gift. We have to understand that. It's not something that, it's our response, yes, but where does that response come from? That response is the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, the the, the gift of repentance. That's why repentance is a very difficult thing. Repentance is impossible unless God, by his spirit, enables us to repent. And he does when we pray. We ask him. But notice what he promises right? He's going to give the gift of repentance. What will he do? Verse 5, 4 and 5. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight. The rough places smooth. You know, shall be, shall be, shall be. These are promises. What are the valleys? Those are the gloom and despair and discouragement of people. Those are the valleys, right? The lowness, right? What are the mountains, the hills? That's the pride of man, right? The self-righteousness of man who doesn't see his own sinfulness. Christ is going to come and he's going to make it all level. He's going to make it level. He's going to fill the valleys. He's going to bring down the mountains and he's going to make straight path into your heart. granting you the gift that you need in order to turn away from your sins and, and come to Jesus for salvation. He's going to make those rough ways, he's going to make them smooth. There's more. John is getting people ready to meet him, to meet, you could say, the new Joshua, the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus is going to usher them into, bring them into his kingdom, a kingdom which he brings The kingdom, which is, you could say, the new Canaan, right? Not the old Canaan, but the new Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. See verse 6, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The kingdom, what is that? It's the reign of God, right? Kingdom is really simply this. It's it's the reign of God manifested in and through Jesus. It's, It's being under him, under his reign. Okay? It's revealed most awesomely in his work of salvation, right? The gathering of his church, the gathering of his people. You know, they must provide the Lord with a ready access into their hearts and lives. Clear the debris, be converted. The voice that cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now in verses 7 through 14 shows how to prepare It's really important that we think about these things. He's coming again. We're called to prepare, but how do we prepare ourselves? I mean, the most important thing in life is our relationship with the Lord. That's everything. Because that says everything about our relationships with others, right? And fruit bearing. But our relationship with the Lord. What is your relationship with the Lord like? That's what John addresses. How do you prepare And that leads us to verses 7 through 14. He just uses one word, basically, repentance. Multitudes, right? Multitudes, we hear, are coming to John to receive baptism. Why? Because he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, we have to understand this baptism of John was particular baptism just for that time, right? Before the coming of Jesus. A little bit later, you read in the book of Acts that the disciples of John who had the baptism of John had to receive the baptism, the Christian baptism, right? The baptism of forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit, right? But this is a baptism particularly just to that time, the time that John had uh, been appointed or sent by God. Repent us first, John says. Then baptism, he says to the multitudes. And baptism was a sign of their repentance. What's repentance? Repentance is turning away from those sins that do not align with God's will. It's turning away from your sins, not just turning away from them, but having a hatred for them, a repulsiveness towards those sins. And then not only turning away from them, but turning to Christ. And it comes with that resolute desire that I want to live to please him. You're going to see it's a, it's a gift from the Lord that he gives to those who ask. You know, the Jews consider Gentiles unclean. But John, John's stinging rebuke here is, hey, Jews, you're just as unclean. He's talking to the covenant people. As a matter of fact, before they can bring the word of God to the nations who are unclean, they themselves must see their own uncleanness and their need for salvation. And so John is really pointing or really uh, focusing on their need. Notice what he says in verse 7. You might call that name calling today. Brood of vipers. John, brood of vipers, you snakes. That's very strong. How could you say, how could he say that? These were covenant people of God. Brute of vipers, he says. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That's a very strong message. John is saying, if his people, if if you're going to escape the wrath of God, you need, you need to repent from your sins. You need to turn away from them. You need to put it to death. You need to turn to Christ wholeheartedly, he's saying to them. He says, you know, keeping the purity laws of the Pharisees is not enough. That's not repentance enough. Doing all the right things is not repentance enough. They need to repent even of those things, those purity laws of the Pharisees. Otherwise, John says, "You will be destroyed by a, a, in a clash with the with, with Rome." Remember, 70 A.D. This stands in the forefront here, right? Rome, otherwise, Rome will come in and cut down that tree. As a matter of fact, verse nine, John says, "Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees." Who's that axe? Rome, the Roman Empire, Tiberius Caesar. He's ready to come to your gates. And he, God will use him to axe down the house of Israel, such so as God's concern for the house of Israel. They would be cut down. And it was. It was cut down at its root in 70 AD by the Romans. But of course, what is John doing here? He is gathering. The Lord through him is gathering people together who will be saved from that, from that judgment, Yes, those who are saved will, be, will pass through that fire of the Roman war against her, but God is going to preserve that living seed, that remnant, that living seed of the new Israel, which will become the church, which will consist of Jews and Gentiles who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there were pretenders in that crowd. You know who else was there? Matthew 3 talks about the Sadducees and Pharisees there. Oh, they were looking really good. Oh, they were there with the multitudes, but they were pretenders. Sad to say, there are also pretenders in the church. The Bible calls them hypocrites, right? Very religious, outwardly very nice. As Scripture says, they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. 2 Timothy 3, verse 5. Oh, they're drawn to duty. They're drawn to all the right things. And there's something to come to. But their hearts are not drawn to God. Their hearts are not drawn to his word. Their hearts are not drawn with their fellow members. Right? Their hearts are far from God. They think, ah, they think, well, we can deceive others here. Maybe God will overlook our deception, too. Maybe we can deceive God, too, and we can escape the wrath to come. But the only way of escape is going low. Repentance. Taking God's side against ourselves. That's life. That's life. Repentance of sin. John reminds the multitudes of two things in verse 8. If you look at it, verse 8, you know, he talks about the access coming at the root. But in the meantime, he says, There's two things I want to remind you of. He wants to see them spared from that. He says, First of all, true repentance shows in the change of heart and mind. It's practical, it's concrete, it shows in the fruit right? In the fruit of faith. Look at what he says in verse 8. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. In other words, you can say, I repented, but John is saying, prove it. Show it. Give the evidence of it. Genuine repentance must be always joined with the bearing of fruit. The fruit that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and lives. You know, Jesus reminds us on, on that when he returns, that many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not? And they'll say all the things that they did. But he will say, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They confessed the Lord for their lips, but their lives were not matching what their profession That's the first thing. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. May your walk match your confession. John's saying that to them. I mean, John is, he he loves those people. He wants them spared from what's coming. Second, verse 8, he said, don't think, don't say to yourselves, we have Abram as our father. Of course, they literally had Abram as their, their father, right? He was their physical father, father of the flesh. But John is saying, just because you're descended from Abram, that's no fire insurance. That's no fireproof insurance. You can't rely, you can't depend, in other words, on your father's good name to get to heaven. No. You can't depend on your father's faith. You can't depend on your ancestry. You can't depend on your church membership. You can't depend on your baptism to escape the wrath to come. These things may be important. But you can't depend on them. John says, I say to you, and he's pointing to those stones. There's a lot of stones in the desert there. He points to those pebbles. He, he says, I say to you, God can raise the children of Abraham out of those stones. He doesn't need you. He can raise those children out of stones. In other words, he can make stony hearts, people that you think will never believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he can make them, give them hearts of Faith and obedience. Trust and obedience. He says in verse 9, every tree which does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So what does conversion and repentance look like? John even gets very concrete here. He gives some examples of what it looks like. Verses 10 through 14. There are three groups of individuals or people that came to him from the multitudes. There was a general population that came to him. And each one of them, you know, each one of the groups asked, what must we do? What must we do? What must we do? There's an emotional, um, you, you sense a conviction of the Holy Spirit at work in their lives. These are covenant people of God. They come to recognize and realize that there was something wrong. And to the people in general, a number of them came to him. John says that there are people who are in need of clothing and food. Share your wealth with them. That's an example of the fruit of repentance. To the tax collectors who came to be baptized, he said, don't cheat. Be honest in your dealings with others. No shady dealings. Okay, hey, that's a practical fruit of, that's what repentance looks like. That's what John is saying here. And finally, the soldiers, he said, stop intimidating others and be content with your, with your wages. All these things are examples of repentance. Um, John brings out here. You know, it really goes to show, eh, that confession of sin is not enough. <laughs> to say I believe in Jesus and not change my ways is not genuine faith. That was in the multitudes there too. There were people who were not really truly believers, though they said so. Genuine repentance of faith comes with a change of heart and mind. It's specific. Maybe it's specific in our situation too. Maybe you're battling with bitterness. Yeah, that's no excuse for it. But we need to repent of it maybe anger, or maybe lust. We need to repent of it and truly show that we do truly trust on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's the abuse of alcohol. We need to truly turn away from it. It's very specific. Every person, right? Every person has to deal with areas in their lives where they really need to... Say, I need to repent of this. I need to repent of this. For this, we need God's grace. It's a gift, no doubt, but it's a grace that we can come to him to ask for. And that's why you notice immediately after, well, John gives this really, you know, hard blow to the covenant people. He points them to, I'm going to announce one who's going to do everything that you need in your life. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who can answer. He's the one who can satisfy. He's the one who can change your hearts and change your minds and give you the grace to do that, enable you to do that. That brings us to verse 15 to 18. And you notice there, they're wondering if their John is the Messiah because he's speaking so powerfully. John says, No, 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 no. I'm not the Messiah. Don't look at me. I'm just a voice. I come and go. I must decrease. But I'm pointing to the one who is much more powerful and much greater. In verses 16 through 18, he introduces Christ to the people. That's where he concludes. He says two things here. He says, first of all, you look to him. He's much greater. Don't look to me. I can't do anything for you. I can call you to prepare the way. But look to him, he's much greater, he's much more powerful. Verse 16, see that? I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. You know, loosing a sandal strap, what was that? That's the feet, right? That's the gross part, right? Walking through the wilderness, and you get all the dust and dirt, and maybe snake, maybe some snake venom on there, I don't know skins, whatever, it was just gross. And it is said that even a disciple wouldn't even go so low as to, to cleanse or loosen the strap of a sandal of his master. Not even a disciple would. And now John is saying, this one? I'm not even worthy to bend that low and, and, and to loosen that strap on his foot of this one. I'm not even worthy of that. That's how magnificent and glorious he is. That's really the good news that John is sharing there. In other words, he's great. He's magnificent. That's the first thing. The second thing he says, you know, the baptism I offered was just with water. (laughs) But, I mean, it was a baptism of preparation, no doubt. It was only for that time. But Christ, however, he will baptize you. With the Holy Spirit and fire. Holy Spirit and fire. When was this fulfilled? At Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit was poured upon the church. It's by His Spirit that Christ now enables His people to repent. There's no way we can repent and believe on our own, right? We need the grace of God. We're called to, right? Repent and believe, but I can't. Repent and believe, but I can't. Right? So God demands one hand, but he also gives with the other hand. That's the beautiful thing about grace. He gives it. He gives what we need. That's why the Spirit was poured out on Pentecost. Notice the same question on that day. What shall we do? Acts chapter 2. Those accepting Christ by faith were purified. That's where the fire comes in, right? Fire purifies. They were cut to the heart, right? Their hearts were being purified as the Holy Spirit was convicting them of their sin. And what's Peter say? Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, we live in those days today, Christ, by his death and resurrection, what does he do? He brings life to all who believe and repent on him. He brings us from the wilderness of our sins to Jesus himself, who is life himself. I love those words of Isaiah, chapter 35. For water shall shall burst forth in the wilderness, the streams in the desert, the parched ground shall become a pool, the thirsty land springs of water, A highway will be there and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. We live in those days. Okay, but no doubt we live in the days of the gift of the Spirit. But John also says, okay, Holy Spirit and fire, but he also points to the second coming of Jesus as well. The first coming by means of a spirit, you could say, poured out the church, but then later the second coming. Verse 17, he says, his winnowing fan, you could say a shovel, is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Picture here the grain being loosed from the, from the husks, and then taking the shovel, you can use the word shovel here, I suppose, and then throwing it up in the air, and you have a stiff breeze, what happens to the chaff? Flows away. And what happens to the grain, the fruit? It falls to the ground. And John says, And he will gather all the grain and he will store it in his house. Think of those words in Psalm 116 Precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of his saints. Right? Talks about, you know, he's making houses, he's making mansions for his own. Right? He will store them in his house, but those, the chaff, will be burned with unquenchable fire. Are we prepared? By the grace of God, may it be. The final judgment is certain. It will be complete. How is this good news, you might ask? Well, this is the good news. All evil, all unbelievers will be decisively overthrown and burned. And all the forgiven, the repentant believers will inherit not a wilderness, but a garden even a garden that's greater than the garden that Adam and Eve were placed in. A new heavens, a new earth, the garden of the Lord. John sets this out for them, but also for us who wait for his second coming. Just a few words in closing, a few things. First, as I said earlier, John's message seems really harsh in today's ears, and such a message is really not that popular. It, It doesn't doesn't always sound nice. But then again, we have to remember, popularity is not the test of truth. John ended up in prison for saying the truth. Right? He ended up in prison because he was rebuking Herod for taking his brother's wife, Herodias, and for other evils he was committing. So yeah, um, but he was still doing the will of God. He was preaching the truth. John really, really loved the people. He loved them so much, he, he says, I have to say this to you. I don't want you to go in the way of, with the acts. Second thing, I think sometimes it's, the church today is very soft on repentance, and I think we easily fear the judgment of man rather than fear the judgment of God on unrepentant, un- unrepentant sin. But those are things we need to repent of. Because God takes it all so seriously, his relationship with us. We need to repent of that. Is this lack of fear maybe the reason why sometimes there's maybe a lack, for, a lack of thirst for Jesus? for his word, for coming together and the worship of his people. I'll bring another thing out. Um, John is very strong, but I'll bring another thing out. You know, there's a, there's a lot of discussion today in our URCNA churches that the second service, there's a lack of attendance. Why? Why? Does Christ mean that much to us? Is there other priorities? Is something more pressing? Something more important? You know, as members, we made vows. We made commitments to the place where we are members. To uphold one another. To encourage one another. Is there lack of thirst? Oh, may it not be. How are we preparing? How are we preparing for Christ in his coming? Fourth, a voice in the wilderness cries out today, even in the community around us, come, we say, see the salvation of the Lord. He's the one who, Christ is the one who perfectly obeyed for you. He's the one who died for you, who who died to save his people from their sins. And therefore, that call sounds very stark and harsh. Repent and believe. But it's the most loving thing we could ever do. It's a rescue mission. To God be the glory. Amen.